0: We come to God's Word again this morning, as it always is a blessing, and we're looking again at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you may remember if you were here with us last week that we said chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians is a carefully interwoven argument, and so we're picking up the second half of it. As a brief reminder, last week, Paul began by thanking God for his work in the Thessalonians' lives as God was working them in them an abundantly growing faith and increasing love and a steadfastness in the face of affliction. And particularly as Paul talked about their steadfastness in the face of affliction, it brought him to comment on God's justice and the justice of God even in calling believers to suffer for it gives evidence of their union with Christ and also glorifies God's justice on the last day. But as Paul talks about that, he he moves now to talk more about God's justice, about God's judgment as well as the glory which he will give to those who have put their faith in Christ. And I realize that in today's day and age, superlatives are perhaps overused, but I don't think it's To overuse superlatives to say that in today's passage, we have one of the most important descriptions of the most fundamental choice facing each one of us. So if you join me, let's begin reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 5 and read to the end of the chapter. "'This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering.'" so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Father, how we thank you for giving us this word by your Spirit. Thank you for continuing to apply it to your people through your Spirit. Would you do so this morning for the good of your church and the glory of your name? We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. I think we live in a day and age of a multiplication of options. Anything we do, we have more options than we can consider. And this is perhaps particularly born to uh, the lives of those of you finishing your high school career and preparing to launch into the next stage of your life. According to the U.S. News report this past year, there are 4,298 colleges for you to choose from in the United States alone and 1,800-plus college majors that you have to decide between. If you're thinking as you go, maybe you'll paint your apartment a different color. Sherwin-Williams has 1,500 different shades on the color palette for you to choose from. And so if anxiety and stress is on the rise today, it's no wonder. Just, Just think about all of the amazing options you don't even know are out there. And of course, when it comes to the more important questions... What do you believe about God, about religions? According to one count, there's over 4,300 variants of religious belief to choose from. How do I know that this one, as a teen that I talked to in recent months, said, how do I know that Christianity is right and not the 4,299 others? There's a lot of options. But our passage this morning brings us good news in the face of options, because it tells us that when it comes to decisions about faith, about life, about following God, there are really just two options, and really just one choice we need to make. Because our text this morning declares that when Jesus comes again, each one of us and every person who has ever lived will face one of two realities, judgment or glory, And this is why superlatives are necessary, because if each one of us is guaranteed to face either judgment or glory, it is the most important truth for us to know the details of these realities and where we stand. As we walk through these verses, I want us to answer four questions, who, when, what, and how, about both judgment and glory. And we'll start with God's judgment in verses 8 and nine. Who? Who will face God's judgment? Surely this is one of the most important questions for us to answer. And verse 8 tells us, if you see there in verse 8, the Lord Jesus will come to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these two qualifications, do not know God or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, are not two independent qualifications. In other words, they're they're not two different groups of people. It's not like if you meet one of them, then you're okay. These are two different descriptions of the same group of people because we cannot know God apart from the person of Christ. Scripture tells us that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the express image of His person. And so, to obey the gospel… Then, what is, what is included in to obey the gospel of Jesus? To obey the gospel is to heed its summons, to put our faith in the Son of God who died in our place to take the punishment we deserve and rose again for our life. So the description here is, do we know God as expressed in Jesus Christ and have we obeyed the summons of the gospel to put our faith in? and him, and to obey, to follow him, to obey his commands. I think the, the book of First John wraps all of this together so well when it says that we, have, that we know we have come to know God if we believe that Jesus is the Christ and if we obey his commandments. Do you see how knowing God, confessing Christ, and obeying his commandments are all wrapped up in one package of the gospel? And this, of course, is not a statement that you either agree with us as Christians or you're out. That's not um, what this question is getting at. Rather, what we are hearing in Scripture, this truth of who faces judgment or not, comes down to this reality. We are all born sinners. We are all born not knowing God and not obeying Him. And so we will all face judgment unless we come to Him through Jesus Christ, through His death on our behalf. And so in answer to this who question, while 87% of Americans would say that they believe in God, the test is not whether we believe that God exists, but whether we have put our faith in Jesus, whether we have entrusted ourselves to the gospel and its call to follow him. If the the answer to that question is no, I have not submitted to Jesus. If I have not put my trust in Him, if I am not following Him in obedience, then God's Word warns us that the just punishment of eternal judgment is the end of that road. That's who. Well, when? When will this justice come? And actually, at the verse of, end of verse seven tells us that this judgment will come when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with the mighty angels. In other words, it's at that last day when Jesus descends with the trumpet sound, as we heard in 1 Thessalonians, when the dead will be raised and those who trust Christ are caught up to be with him, on that same day when Jesus is revealed, we will all face judgment or glory. Of course, some might ask, well, it would really help me to know when exactly that day is. You've told me it's when Jesus is revealed, but when is that? But we remember that God's word tells us we don't know the day or the hour. Not even the Son of Man knows. And so what is the counsel? Be ready. It could happen any day. And so are our hearts in good stead with our Savior. This is who, this is when, coming on the last day when Jesus is revealed from heaven. But what? What exactly does God's judgment involve the end of verse 8 tells us more details. It says that Jesus will be revealed in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Now this is intense language, isn't it? The Son of God coming in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. And maybe this brings images of a vindictive divine being showing up to just torture those who disagree with him. But that's not what this language is describing, and I want us to understand importantly and carefully what, why Paul has used this language. We start with flaming fire. Flaming fire has throughout Scripture been a sign of the presence of God. Maybe you think of Moses who stood before a bush, flaming in fire, and out of it spoke the voice of God saying, you are on holy ground for here is the presence of the Almighty One. Maybe you think of Mount Sinai as as Israel gathered around Mount Sinai and it says that the Lord descended in flaming fire so that the mountain smoked. It's the the fire, the flaming fire which symbolizes and, and shows us the presence of God. And so here we're hearing that when the Lord Jesus is revealed, he will be coming with the very presence of the holy God coming in flaming fire. Flaming fire is also an appropriate symbol for God's presence because his pure and utter holiness, if it meets the sinfulness of our hearts, can only undo and consume us. And so here is Jesus who will be revealed from heaven as a flaming fire and he will inflict vengeance. And I think inflicting vengeance may not be as helpful a translation of this word for us today, because vengeance to us typically implies a personal getting back at someone who has hurt us. Maybe, maybe some of you have watched the recent uh, movie of Little Women that came out, and you have this picture of Amy who burns Joe's diary as a vengeance or a, a punishment for not allowing her to go to the theater with her. But the Greek word here is not talking about personal or petty getting back at someone. It's a word that speaks only of pure justice and judicial punishment delivered in its most just sense. And so here we have, what is it that the Lord Jesus will do? He will come in flaming fire in the full presence of God as the presence of God comes, inflicting pure justice, judicial punishment on each one as they deserve. Well, how? What will that look like? What are the details of that punishment? This is our last, our fourth question. How will God punish those who do not know God or obey the gospel? And we hear this in verse 9, in what must be some of the most sobering words of Scripture, that that he will bring eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from his glory. Here we have a truth that should shake our hearts and stir our eagerness to speak of Christ wherever the Lord opens a door for us, because the punishment, the just punishment on those who do not submit in faith to Christ is neither temporary nor minor. The punishment is eternal destruction. Now, some might say, well, wait a second, what is it? eternal and destruction kind of seem a little bit at odds, because doesn't to destroy something mean it ceases to exist? And so, isn't Paul just saying that those who are punished will just will cease to exist? But that's not the case because the Greek word used here for destruction does not mean that something will cease to exist. It rather means utter ruin or the loss of all that it is worthwhile. In fact, it's used elsewhere in biblical literature to refer to ongoing suffering. And so, the punishment of those who reject christ is eternal ruin eternal suffering away from the presence of god and from his glory and so paul is agreeing with scripture here you may think of isaiah 66 which declares that their worm or their soul will not die nor will their fire be quenched or with the words of jesus in matthew 25:46 that these will go away to eternal punishment This is the just terms of God's punishment on those who reject him. Now, if we could pause, I think if we're honest about these words, the doctrine of hell and its eternal punishment can be a challenging one. I I would be the first to admit that there are times when this utter punishment of hell can seem out of line with the sympathy we want to have for for people, or out of line with the graciousness and mercy of God as we think of him. But that feeling is not accurate or biblical. We get hijacked by cultural assumptions that make us uneasy about this passage, or maybe even make this passage seem repellent to us. But it's important to calibrate our hearts according to scriptural truth. So let's let's just consider for a second some of the cultural assumptions that can make us uneasy with this doctrine of hell. First, we often adopt the culture's moral standard rather than the Bible's moral standard. The culture's moral standard is the harm principle, and it goes something like this good people should be free to live how they want so long as they are not harming someone else. In other words, sure, the really wicked people, the, the Larry Nassers, the Stalin bin Hitlers of history, yeah, they should suffer punishment, they should experience hell because they're really wicked and harmed people significantly. But the very kind neighbor who watches my cat, the neighbor who invites me for dinner and I watch football with, Eternal hell seems a little unjust for them by the harm standard. But the Bible tells us we should expect God's common grace to be at work in many people so that there will be many people who reject God and the gospel, who still act out of kindness, who still have the intuitive ability to recognize that goodness and care work better than hate. But the Bible says that the moral guiding line, the standard used to determine condemnation or acquittal, is whether we submit to and acknowledge the only rightful king, the God who created us, to whom we belong, only if we submit to and acknowledge him are we operating according to biblical moral standards. So a person who rejects God as king over his heart and decides to manage life his own way may well decide to manage it in kindness and generosity, but they have still rejected God as their king and sought to live life their own way. And so that is the standard of morality and the principle of judgment that is biblical. How about another cultural assumption? We can adopt the cultural assumption that most sins are are really just mistakes that can be overlooked, not rebellion that needs to be punished. I mean, we know how we go about our day, right? Every one of us slips up and responds in, in an angry retort to someone who bothers us. We, we respond with jealousy or selfishness. These things come out of us, but aren't those mistakes we all make? Are those really rebellion that need to be punished with an eternal hell? But if we look at our sins from God's perspective... We will see how our mistakes, our our anger, our lies, our sexual sin contribute to the suffering and destruction of God's world. And they are our daily statement that we would live life our way rather than God's way. That we would reject God and His standards. That we would reject the one who created us and owns us and go our own way instead. And any lesser view of sin than heinous rebellion not only doesn't match Scripture's description of sin, but any lesser view of sin also undermines the significance of the cross of Christ. Because when we see the Son of God go to the cross, why was that necessary? It was necessary because only the Son of God could bear the extent of the punishment that is due to our sins. And so we need to have a biblical definition and understanding of our sin, not a cultural one. And finally, maybe to hearken back to last week, we often adopt a cultural view of who God is rather than a biblical one. Our culture believes that God's main goal is to meet our needs and and to give us the best future possible. And we'd really have to screw up for a God who's out to just give us the best he can to send us to hell, wouldn't we? And yet, God's goal is not just to meet our needs, but to call us into His plan for His glory. God's goal is to glorify His name and character. And the attributes of God demand just an eternal punishment. Think about it. God's holiness cannot abide with sin. And so God would undermine His holiness if He did not judge rebellious sin with eternal punishment. And God's justice cannot be set aside without denying his character. And so to not give sin what it deserves undermines God's justice. Even God's love, God's love for his own people is what demands or one of the things that demands his punishment of those who rebel against him and act to oppose his people. And so all of God's character from his holiness to his justice to his love demands the justice of the punishment of hell for those who reject him. Take biblical truth and the doctrine of hell is the only just conclusion and the punishment that we each deserve, every one of us, unless we have run to the gospel and the offer of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Just briefly, we can spell these out and they don't need to take time, but just think about some of the application that should come from this. First, if you have not put your faith in Christ, if you are not following him in obedience to the gospel, would you realize the peril you are in and would you come to him today? Second, if you have put your faith in Christ, consider all that Christ has taken upon himself in our place. This description in verses 8 and 9 is what Christ took in our place. This is what he has saved us from. So magnify the name of Christ and what he has done for us. And third, this description is, is not something that will happen in general. Brothers and sisters, this description is what will happen specifically to people who do not know Christ, people that we know who are in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. And so should we not be praying with specific names in mind that these people would know Jesus, that any who do not know Christ would come to know him? And should we not be praying with eagerness to speak of Christ whenever the Lord gives us opportunity? But this is just the first half of the text. Because as we move to verses 10 through 12, here we have the most glorious news. When Jesus came to die in our place, he was not just offering us an escape from judgment. He was also offering us glory with him forever. Look with me, if you would, at verses 10 through 12 as we answer these four questions about the hope of glory for all those who know Christ. Let's begin by asking who, who will share in God's glory And verse 10 tells us, it is those who believe the apostles' testimony. That's great. What's the apostles' testimony? Well, he told us back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, his testimony was the good news of Jesus who died for our sins and rose again for our life. In other words, salvation in Christ is, is not merely a rescue from hell, but it is an invitation for all who would put their faith in Christ to come to glory with him in the presence of His glory forever. Oh, well, When? When will this glory be revealed? When will those who have put their faith in Christ share in this glory? And verse t- 10 tells us, when Jesus comes on that day, on the same day when Jesus is revealed, on the same day that He inflicts just punishment on those who have rejected Him and the gospel, He will also bring the culmination of our hope so that we will dwell with him in glory forever. But I want us to notice something else this text says. While the fullness of our hope of glory arrives on that last day, if you read verses 11 and 12 carefully, you will note that Paul prays that to this end, in other words, with this final day of glory in mind, Paul prays that even now God's people would pursue this worthy calling so that Jesus might be glorified in us us in him and what we learn and we're going to talk more about this in a minute but we learn that as we pursue christ with all our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strength now we are beginning to display god's glory and share in his glory even now while we wait for the fullness of that promise at the last day that's when well the next question is what what is this glory that we share in Because glory is a great word we hear in church. It's a word we use often. But what does it really mean to share in this glory? How does Paul describe it? Well, Paul describes in these verses a double glory. It's all wrapped up in verse 10 in that phrase that when he comes, Jesus will be glorified in his saints. And the same double glory is described in verse 12. When As Paul's praying, he prays that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. In other words, on the one hand, these verses tell us that Jesus is glorified in us. As we are perfected and remade into the image of God, the Spirit of God is remaking us in his image. As he does so, Jesus' own glory shines in us. We become true images Of God's glory, reflecting his glory, so that his glory is seen and magnified and multiplied in the lives of all of his people. Jesus is glorified. But as he's glorified in the lives of all those people, do you see what else is happening? His glory is becoming a reality in us so that we also become partakers. We also share in that glory. We are glorified ourselves in him. By our union with Jesus, we now share his glory. And so, Jesus is glorified in us and we share his glory. It's a double glory. John Stott described it this way. He said, We will be like the filament of a light bulb, which when the switch is turned on, shines with a light that is not its own. And in our transformation, his glory will be seen in us, for we will glow forever with the glory of Christ. The very essence of heaven, therefore, is not focused on the good times we will enjoy, but on our transformation into Christ's image and our preoccupation with His glory that is now shining both in Him and every one of His people. Say what a hope, brothers and sisters. Coming to Christ isn't just a matter of I get-out-of-hell-free card. It is an invitation to glory, to glorify Christ, and to share in that glory. But will you also remember the when question we just answered? That's our final hope. But we have an invitation to begin to participate in this glory even now. And so we ask the how question. How is this possible? I know my own heart. I know the gap between me and the glory of God. How do I start to begin to participate in this glory and and share in this double glory now as we prepare to do so finally on that last day? Well, look at Paul's answer in verse 11. Here Paul prays that God would make the Thessalonians worthy of his calling. How? By fulfilling every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that Jesus is glorified in us and we in him. There's two answers to the how question. How do we share in this double glory? First, Paul clarifies that it is only possible by God's power. He alone is sovereign. He alone has the power to change our hearts and our lives. And so he alone can enable born sinners like you and I to become worthy of his calling and share in his glory. But even while it depends upon God's power, do you see the way this happens? Do you see the means that Paul describes? God will do this by enabling us to fulfill or that he will fulfill our every good resolve our every resolve for good and work of faith. In other words, how does God's power work in us? God's power as John Piper puts it always works in us through our wills, through our good resolves, through our works of faith. That's the means by which God's power works in us. That is how we begin now to be transformed into his image to glorify him and to be glorified in him god's power at work in us as god fulfills our every good every resolve for good and our work of faith see brothers and sisters as god's power as god's people it should be our natural pattern to reflect on our hearts and examine our lives and resolve that's a word that implies determination desire, effort to reach a goal. We should resolve for good and work in faith. Those who belong to Christ, in other words, should be the opposite of Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes. In our house, we have the full four-volume collection of Calvin and Hobbes comics. We read them regularly. And I was looking at a strip from January, not this past January, of course, but a, a, a New Year's column from a January in which Hobbes asks Calvin, are you making any re- resolutions for the new year this year? And Calvin responds, resolutions? Me? What are you, exactly are you applying about me? Are you implying that I need to change? Well, buddy, I've got news for you. I think I'm perfect just the way I am. I don't need any resolutions. See, the Christian is the opposite of that, Right? We look at the glory of God that we are called to. We look at our hearts and we say, I have resolutions to make. Yes, to be fulfilled only by the power of God, but my will is engaged and active. Our pattern is to be like that of Jonathan Edwards. You remember the early American preacher. Jonathan Edwards began a habit at age 18 of writing down resolutions when he would note areas of his life that did not match the call of Scripture. And so he wrote down statements or reminders to encourage him in his pursuit of, the, of holiness and God's glory. Some of these resolutions directed him to the glory of God. He wrote this, resolved never to, do any, never to do any manner of a thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Other resolutions he wrote encouraged him towards godly virtue. He wrote resolved, to endeavor to find any fit object of charity, and resolved to always do what I can towards the making, maintaining, and establishment of peace. But most of his resolutions were practical resolutions, practical resolutions to counter his most prominent personal sins, and they focused particularly on irritability, pride, and speaking harshly or evilly of others. I find it interesting to note that he needed resolutions about speaking harshly or evilly of others, and he didn't even have Facebook at his disposal, which just invites us to speak that way at times. I wonder if these categories are good categories for us to consider to make resolves this morning. Resolves about our hearts aiming for God's glory. Resolves about intentional efforts to love others and seek peace. And resolve specific resolves to counter our most frequent sins. I wonder if maybe you would consider taking time, even this afternoon, on a Sunday afternoon, to begin to make a list of resolves for good that would counter our sins and call us to obedience to God, of course, in reliance on His power. Because, as John Piper puts it, as he was commenting on this passage, he said, The Bible excludes. For Christians, a jellyfish approach to life that just floats along with the current of the times or the spirit of the age, the natural thoughts and sins of our hearts. Rather, Christians are to be dolphins in the sea of sin and secularism, swimming purposefully against the waves around us with resolve, determination, desire, thought, and effort knowing that we always do so and only do so by the power of God at work in us, but that this is the road to double glory. Perhaps we could put it another way as we close today. In our pursuit of obeying Christ, our motivation is not self-improvement. It is not a desperate desire or attempt to earn God's favor. No, our motivation in engaging our wills to obey our God is the unexpected and unimaginable gift of life spent in the glorious presence of God because of the work of Jesus. Our motivation is the joy of that double glory that we can begin to share in even now, seeing this promise that every act of obedience to Jesus that we engage in now glorifies Him and enables us to reflect and share in that glory even now as we wait for its fulfillment and fullness on the last day. And so, brothers and sisters, we have before us two roads and one choice this morning. Will we believe the testimony of Jesus and obey him, enabling us to glorify him and share his glory, spending eternity in his glorious presence? Or will we go our way? Will we doubt his word Will we go the world's way and reject his offer of the gospel and reap the just punishments that these verses describe for all those who spurn their Creator and their King? May we each consider our choice, the most important choice for each of us this morning. Father, when we come to these truths, these are stark choices, they are stark consequences. When we see where these roads lead. But how we rejoice and thank you. Knowing that all of us deserve to be at the end of road number one. Suffering the just punishments of those who live our lives our way on our own and without you. And yet you have sent Jesus Christ. You are holding the invitation out to all who will come to you in faith and obedience. That we might not just escape punishment but share in a double glory. We might glorify you and be glorified in you and with you. What a gift, what an offer, what a hope. Father, would you call our hearts to stake our whole beings on that hope this morning? May we resolve towards that goal for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania.